Psalm 98. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seat, you'll find today's text on page 318. Page 318 in the Bibles that are provided. I would, as we often do, encourage you to take a Bible and to open it. This morning we will be examining this passage of Scripture very carefully and learning from it. And it will help you to have a copy of the Scriptures open in front of you so that you can clearly see uh, where we are learning from because the Scripture teaches us. We've read Psalm 98 together. And uh, let's just take a moment to pause before the Lord and ask for His help as we consider this passage of Scripture. Our gracious God and Father, we are reminded at this time of year of the great joy that we can know because of your Son who came, who offered himself a sacrifice, and who will one day come again to rule and reign. I pray as we consider that this morning, we would understand the message of this text of Scripture and the way in which it applies to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can have joy because of Jesus. You can have joy because of Jesus. We've sung about joy all throughout our service. We've sung about the the joy that surrounds the Christmas season. And this morning we open now to Psalm 98. You may think that's a, a strange juxtaposition to open to the Psalms when we are starting the Christmas season, but I trust you'll understand very soon why we're doing that. You probably, of course, know the hymn, the Christmas carol that we just sang very well. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. What you may or may not realize is that it was actually never intended as a Christmas song. In fact, if you look at the words very carefully, you'll quickly realize that there's nothing about the manger, there's nothing about the shepherds, There's nothing about the angels. There's nothing about the wise men. There's nothing really about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his first coming at all in the entire song, Joy to the World. Well, what you may or may not know is that these words that we just sang, Joy to the World, were written by Isaac Watts, one of the greatest hymn writers ever to live. I'll just tell you a little bit about Watts. He was born in Southampton, England in 1674. Even at an early age, he was very bright. Uh, he, he had the capacity to, to learn well. In fact, he was the son of the, an educator, so he, he began to learn very early in life and to just absorb tremendous amount of information. It was clear that he was uh, almost a prodigy. He just had a real gift for, for smithing words, for putting words together, arranging them in a way that was that was metrical, that rhymed, that was poetic. And he showed such a gift for making rhymes that he, he had the habit of doing it all the time, a habit that got rather annoying to his parents eventually. In fact, his father got so tired of it that he, he forbid him from making any more poems in the house. Well, he forgot, and like those of us who enjoy puns, he just couldn't resist He had to make rhymes, so he did one day, and his father was going to spank him because he had been disobedient, and 
And he responded, Oh, Father, do some mercy take, and I will no more verses make. (laughs) One Sunday, Isaac and his family were on their way home from church, and he was 16 years old. And he, as 16-year-olders are inclined to do sometimes, was complaining. In this particular case, he was complaining about the hymns that were sung in church. And his father said to him, Well, if you don't like them, you should write something better. And so he did. That afternoon, he sat down and he penned his first hymn based on Revelation 5, 6 through 12. Well, his father was quite impressed. So impressed, in fact, that he brought it to church that evening. Where the entire congregation sang the song that he had written that afternoon during their worship service. Over his life, Watts would compose some 600 hymns and even more poems, some of which have still never been set to music. Isaac would pen a great, rich heritage for us of hymnody. And Watts' hymns are still sung even today. You'll know many of them. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Jesus shall reign. O God, our help in ages past, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Now, in addition to the hymns that Watts wrote, he also wrote a number of psalm paraphrases, psalms which were set to meter, much like we've been doing this year, right? We've been taking a psalm each month throughout the year, We've been learning that psalm together in, in a poetic form, in a, in a metered form, and we've been singing it. And so Watts also wrote a good number of psalms that he had, had set to meter. One example of the psalms that he wrote was Psalm 98. We know it more commonly by the title, Joy to the World which is a paraphrase of the psalm that lies before us this morning. Joy to the World was first published in 1719. It was actually published with a different melody. Uh, I would sometimes, as a music pastor, get amused with people who were offended by the fact that we had changed the music to which we sang that text, not realizing that that actually is quite common historically, and probably the music that you know it with is not the one that it started with. Um, Be that as it may, it was originally sung with a different tune, and about a hundred years later, in 1836, Lowell Mason uh, would weave together a few themes that he found in Handel's Messiah to create a new melody that he called Antioch. Do you realize that every melody, not only does a song have a name, but the melody itself actually has a name. And so Mason wrote this melody, Antioch, which is the tune that we now Uh, have wedded with the words joy to the world. It's a perfect match, and we still sing it that way even to this very day. So as we mentioned, it is a reflection. Joy to the world is a reflection on Psalm 98. It is keeping with the theme of the psalm, which really is not, not the first coming of Christ, not the incarnation, but it looks forward to the second coming when Christ's work will be completed when he will reign on the earth. And so, joy to the world will actually be our psalm of the month this month. It is Watts' version of Psalm 98. 
Um, we're doing, we're preaching a lot, uh, what we've been doing this year is preaching the psalm at the end of the month. I wanted to move it up to the first Sunday of the month so as we think about it all through the Christmas season, we would be reminded of the text here uh, before us in Psalm 98. Well, we learn from this psalm that you and I can have joy because of Christ. You and I can have joy because of Christ. We see in verse uh, verses 1 through 3, several. We, the first reason that we can rejoice. We can rejoice because God saves His people. Notice it with me in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. We've seen already throughout the Psalms that it is a common theme that a response to the grace of God is our singing. We looked at that most in depth last week as we considered Psalm 100, a thanksgiving psalm. That the response of the joyful heart, the response of one who has been bestowed the grace of God is to sing, to erupt in song. And of course, they are now to sing a new song. This new song is appropriate. It is appropriate to write a song because of the victory. He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained Him the victory. Now, we know that God is a spirit, though those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But the, but the, but the hand, the arm, particularly the right hand, in the ancient time was, was a, a metaphor, a way of speaking of the strength of a person. Well, God's strength, His might, has gained the victory. And so here we see God's chosen people, Israel had experienced a tremendous victory. Now, many commentators suppose that they're speaking about the victory of the Medes and the Persians over Babylon that we find in Daniel 5 that led to the return of Jewish exiles in their land. You remember Ezra 1. You remember the book of Ezra. This is what this is all about. And so many commentators um, put together some clues and suppose that Psalm 98 is a celebration of that, and in fact there is good reason for thinking so, although we don't know it for certain. This, this new victory, this special victory, was occasion for a new song, the psalmist says in verse 1. One specifically written for such a joyous occasion. It calls for the writing of a special song just for this victory. Keep in mind that the whole psalm, though, is speaking not about just the victory in the near term, but, but speaks about a, a future victory. I mean, if you examine the psalm, you'll see that this is all woven throughout it. Not only are they reflecting about the victory in the immediate, but they are looking uh, towards the permanent victory that will one day be accomplished by God Himself, the ultimate salvation to come. We see that in verse 2. The Lord has made known His salvation. His righteousness has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His mercy and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, we saw in the, in the first section, God is a warrior. His right hand, His, his arm, His strength, His might has, has defeated the enemy. We see this numerous places in the psalm. And it may be that this, this image of God as a warrior is disturbing to some. It is disturbing to those who are in rebellion against Him. But it is a comfort to those who are His. 
You see, God's salvation of Israel testifies to the Gentiles. It testifies to the nations. It showed his faithfulness to his covenant people. It showed his love for his people. But it seems that the writer was looking beyond a mere local victory. We mentioned this already, but speaks of a witness to all the nations. Right? And when we see this kind of language in, in Hebrew literature, we're reminded that there's something much bigger going on than, than just the immediate context. I mean, the Jewish people were very Judeocentric. They were focused on, on themselves as God's chosen people. When we see that which resounds to the nations around, we see hints of a Savior that would come that would be a blessing to all nations. Do you remember the promise made to Abraham? That through you, Abraham, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so this touches on a messianic theme, a theme, a, a thread that runs all the way from the early pages of Genesis all the way into the New Testament that we see then expanded, better understood, revealed in Jesus Christ. And so although the psalmist may not have known the name Jesus Christ, it might not have used it in such a way as we would, he knew that there was a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior coming. And this Savior would not just, not just accomplish a short-term victory, not just an immediate victory, but that he would one day rule and reign. The psalmist points ahead to Jesus. You'll see this paralleled in Isaiah 52. We won't take the time to read it this morning, but Isaiah 52, 1 through 10, points forward to this one who would be the Savior. And that is... What we need, is it not? And so Watts writes, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What is this language of the curse? Well, man is infected by sin. Every one of us, you and I, are guilty before God. We are separated from God because of our sin. Sin is that which we do that does not please God. We, we do things that we ought not, that his, his law is commanded against. We fail to do the things that we ought to do, the things that he has told us to do. And because of that, we are separated from God. We are separated from him by birth and by our continued choices. And in fact, all of creation has fallen under a curse because of mankind's sin. Do you remember the image of the garden? Do you remember after the first sin, how God comes into the garden and he points to the fact that because of Adam's sin, that now, now labor would be difficult. And thorns and thistles, this is the imagery that Watts is using in his hymn text, no, no more let sin and sorrow reign. This one who conquers, this one who is the Savior, he will roll back the curse of sin. And in fact, the very effects, thorns, thistles, sorrow, all because of sin, will no longer rule because the Savior has come.
My friends, that is what we need before anything else. We need a Savior. One to save us from our greatest problem, the problem of, of sin. At this time of year, it is very tempting for us to see this babe in the manger and think of it as some sort of a, a romantic, pleasant, beautiful picture, and it is. But really, if we think more deeply about it, what we discover is that it is a, a gruesome reminder that we need a Savior. We are, we are cursed, and what we need above all is to be saved from sin. You see, we tend to think, well, what I need to be saved from is this financial dilemma. What I need to be saved from is, is this problem that exists in my family. What, we need, what I need to be saved from is this health crisis that I am challenged by. It's not to say that we don't need any of those things or that some of those would not be good. What we fail to realize is our greatest problem is none of those things. Our greatest problem is that we are under the judgment of the God of heaven because of our sin. And Jesus provided what only Jesus could provide salvation from the curse. Oh, but his work is not done. In fact, what he is doing in our lives as believers, if you're a believer this morning, that sanctification process, that, that drawing you more back to his image, that will be completed for the whole creation one day. And all of the creation will be restored when Jesus rules and he will be the Savior not only of a specific group of people that are in Christ, but really the salvation of the redemption of the whole creation. We call this the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand years when Christ will physically, literally, actively rule on the earth. And this is what Watts is speaking of when he says, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, right? I mean, do you, do you see like thorns and thistles go away when Jesus came the first time? Do you see sorrow go away when Jesus came the first time? No, no, that work is yet to be completed by a reigning, ruling Savior. You see, Jesus' work isn't done. It is being done in our lives day by day but it will one day come to its fruition, to its completion. And oh, what a day that will be when Jesus saves not only his redeemed people, but all of creation. What we need most is a Savior, and we can rejoice because Jesus is that Savior. But we see also that we can rejoice because God rules the earth. Psalm 98 is called a royal psalm. It emphasizes God's kingship. And this is most notable in verses 4 through 6 where we see that God's rule is cause for rejoicing. Notice verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praise. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and with the sound of the uh, sound of a psalm with trumpets 
and sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Do you see all of this exuberance that exists? All of this is being encouraged by the psalmist to rejoice. It, it, the, the, the reality of Christ is, is cause for rejoicing. Likewise, Isaac Watts writes, Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. This is, a, this is a cause of rejoicing that the king is coming. He is ruling. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And then there's an allusion um, to verse 4 in the second stanza as well of Joy to the World. Let men their songs employ. This is, this is reason for rejoicing. The psalm reflects on the Lord as the deliverer, as the king. But it also presents him as the judge who will one day come and deal with the earth as he once dealt with Babylon. We're to rejoice because God rules. Nothing has escaped his notice. Nothing has escaped his attention. Nothing is beyond his control. In fact, the the temporary calamity that we see the, the curse of sin that is in effect will be rolled back. He will once again rule actively and presently. And so we see here in verses 4 through 6 that there is cause for rejoicing because of this ruler. We see lastly in this passage that we are to rejoice because, because God judges the nations. So his rule is not pleasant for all. Because it means the banishment, it means the punishment, it means the the, the taking down of those who would rebel against him, those who would oppose his economy. But even that is a cause for rejoicing. Verse 7 and 8 says, all the earth, uh, creation itself is invited to rejoice in God's promised rule. Uh, Verse 7, let the sea roar. In its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. All of creation is to rejoice. What what does Paul tell us? That, That right now, all creation groans. You remember that? Right? Because of the weight of the curse, that creation itself groans. It is bearing up under the weight of the curse of sin. Ah, but when God, through, through Jesus Christ, rules again, that will be taken away. The, the curse of sin will be removed. And all of the earth, not just people, but, but the creation itself will rejoice. Stanza 2 of Joy to the World says, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. And he goes on to speak about creation. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. But why is the earth to rejoice? What is the cause for such celebration? It is the coming, active, personal rule of God on the earth. We see this in verse 9. Let the hills be joyful together, verse 8, before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness He shall judge the world and the peoples 
with equity. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. The righteous judge, the, the right judge, the just judge will rule. Do you ever hear a news story about someone who, who got off scot-free? Someone who got this light little slap on the wrist for an atrocious crime? And you think to yourself, what is wrong with our justice system? You know what's wrong with our justice system? It has imperfect people. It has, in fact, sinful people, cor- corrupted people. People that are under the weight of the curse of sin. And even those who who wish to be just and wish to be right and and strive to do the right thing, the decisions will always be flawed. We live under the weight of sin. But there is a just judge coming. A just judge who will always make the right decision. Who will always rule rightly. And we don't have to elect him. Right? You ever, ever look at the ballot box and you think to yourself, bad, worse, or worst? Hmm. Right? Guess what? The perfect governor is coming. The perfect king will reign over us. And this is cause for rejoicing. The one who will always rule rightly. He ru- rules the world with truth and grace. Oh, but should he not be ruling now in our own lives? The one who always wants what is best for us, the one who always knows the right thing, who says, do this and don't do this, uh, to, to live in the light of his commandments, ought not be grievous to us. He asks now even for our loyalty, for our submission to his will for us. And so I guess I would wonder as we look forward to that day when he rules the world, we look forward to that day when he makes right the things that are around us, how are we doing now in our own lives? Does he, is he exercising his rule as king in your life today, in my life today? Are we submitting to him knowing that his demands for us are our best? He will rule the world one day. Does he rule us even today? I wonder, too, when we think about the matter of the gospel, that is the first order of submission. For us to repent of sin and to depend completely on Jesus Christ, this just judge. When he does come to rule the world, which side of the equation will we find ourselves? Will we be among the group who has rebelled against Jesus Christ? The, the ruler, the one who has said, repent and believe? Or will we find ourselves among his own, who have already bowed the knee to him, who have submitted to him? So this morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me invite you to submit even today to his right rule. Submit to him and, and then believer day by day. Submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So joy to the world may not really strictly be a Christmas carol, but it is related to the incarnation. 
without a doubt. Jesus, because of Jesus coming in the flesh, there can be joy to the world. Were it not for the first incarnation, there could be, there would be no second incarnation, no return. And so the, the inauguration of his work that began in a stable in Bethlehem will reach its culmination when he comes again to rule the earth, that same baby in a manger will come to rule the earth in truth and grace. So what is joy to the world about? What is Psalm 98 about? How is it applied to Jesus coming into the world? Why can there be joy to the world? Because God sent Jesus to save the world. And a Savior is what we need most. Why can there be joy to the world? Because Jesus is a good and righteous King over all of the earth. And His kingdom is coming. Why can there be joy to the world? Because Jesus will return ruling and judging the nations. He will judge all sin and wickedness. He will make things right. There is a day... That, that wrongs will be righted and sin will be judged and the judge will bring justice and equity to the earth. He will rule the world with truth and grace. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Father, we are thankful for the promises to which we look forward. We thank you that even in your word we can have hope that one day your work will be completed. It will reach its culmination as Jesus Christ actively and physically rules on this earth.